The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by Patrick Ruffini, who is a pollster at Echelon Insights, and he is the author of a new book called Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. GOP, of course, standing for the Grand Old Party, for British listeners who don't know, which is the Republican Party. Um, Patrick, uh, I suppose the latest news on uh, Republican polling uh, is that Nikki Haley um, is doing, well, to my mind, surprisingly well in the polls. I wonder what you think about that and how this possible success, do you believe that she's doing well in the polls? And how does that tie in or how does your book possibly suggest that, that, that she's not going to be the Republican nominee in 2024? I don't know if my book has very much to say about whether Nikki Haley specifically will be the Republican nominee in 2024. However, we have seen uh, since the, these debates, um, Haley uh, has shown that she is very sharp in these debates and is good at hand-to-hand combat, uh, whether it's with Vivek Ramaswamy, not not directly with Donald Trump since he is not on the debate stage, but he she seems to um, show a, a certain level of combativeness that I think Republican voters in this Trump era really appreciate, even though she comes at it and her voting base is quite more, mo- is a good deal more moderate than um, than Trump's voting base or even DeSantis's voting base. Um, no, currently the, the polls um, show uh, Trump is way ahead in the primary nationwide. And, uh, you know, really a, a really a, uh, a close race for second at this point between uh, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, leading i think in most of the national polls and for that for that second place position that is still far behind donald trump with nikki haley uh, also coming up in that in that battle um and you look at the early state polls um you have the iowa caucus right where desantis has really made a move with the endorsement of the iowa governor which could prove very significant for him but it looks to me like there is a split between Iowa and New Hampshire, of course, the first two primary states. So in uh, Iowa, DeSantis trying to make a strong move and really trying to plant his flag there. Whereas Nikki Haley, I think, is pretty strongly positioned in a state like New Hampshire. Um, And I think she's strongly positioned, maybe more so than most polls appreciate, because in New Hampshire, independents can vote and they do vote in the New Hampshire primary. And particularly because there's no real contest on the Democratic side right now. Uh, There is no they tried to get rid of the New Hampshire primary. They can't by state law, but Joe Biden will not be on the ballot. So it'll be the motley of anti, you know, Biden primary challengers who will be competing. Um, but as a result, I think you could see a lot of Democrats and independents vote in the Republican primary, and they typically would vote for the more moderate candidate. Now you have Chris Christie, certainly 
uh, capturing a good deal of that lane, the former New Jersey governor who uh, got into the race as a sort of a human missile aimed at Donald Trump to try to take him down. So he has the support of a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of more left-leaning voters uh, to the extent they exist in the Republican primary, but it has high unfavorable ratings. The question, I think, where we go from here in terms of, you know, everyone, both Haley and DeSantis really are trying to make this a two-person race after Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think it's going to be very uh, difficult for there to be a consensus if those states, if if different candidates do well in different states. But the question for both candidates is, even if you have a two-way race, Trump is sitting at about 60% of the primary vote. How are you going to get that number down to below 50%? Um, because ultimately it's academic, right? At that point, if, if even if you get into a two-way race with Trump, um, the polls right now show it's not enough. So do you think it is academic now? I mean, obviously, you there's a lot can change uh, and there are lots of factors at play. There's Trump's legal cases. Uh, there's all sorts of things can happen. But from your reading of the polls now, I mean, even if Nikki Haley does well in New Hampshire, I think it's fairly fair to say she's unlikely to beat Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Well, currently, right. I mean, currently, I, I think she has more of a chance than most are acknowledging based on the strength of this independent voter. But I take the point, and I think very clearly, Donald Trump is about a two to one lead in most of the public polls. Now, things can change to, and do change very relatively pretty quickly in the last two months of these contests. So I don't think we've seen, uh, you know, I don't think we've heard the last word um, from these contests. The question is really who can take that momentum out of New Hampshire and take it national into Super Tuesday. You have a very steep hill to climb uh, to go from uh, campaigning in one or two states where you can really saturate the air, you can really saturate the airwaves, you can saturate the state with visits and rallies and town hall events and really get to meet a large share of the electorate. That is not really possible, uh, you know, in a national campaign, a national primary campaign. So this is always the challenge for candidates who tr- break through in Iowa, New Hampshire. I also think that Haley potentially struggles in a two-way uh, race against Trump um, because I don't think she's as well, as well ideologically positioned as compared to Ron DeSantis, who I think uh, really is a, would be more acceptable uh, if Donald Trump were to falter, would be more acceptable to his base of voters. That is his theory of the case. Uh, and it hasn't played out based on the dynamics because those voters are just fine voting for Donald Trump right now. Um, but to the extent that there is a two-person way race between DeSantis and Haley, most of the polls to date have shown DeSantis doing better in those two-way matchups because I think he represents more of that conservative base um, that is uh, about 80% of the Republican primary electorate. So it sounds to me like if you were to be, if your mission was to try and stop Trump winning the Republican nomination uh, and you are able to get it down to two candidates... Uh, one candidate versus Trump, you would still put your, you would still prefer that to be DeSantis. Look, I think, I think, yes. I think that if you, if you actually look at, you know, who is the ability, who would have the ability theoretically to more easily, who has the higher ceiling, frankly, with Republican voters, because I think Haley makes it a very clear contrast with Donald Trump, uh, but I think makes it into you know, a populist versus establishment type battle. And I don't think the establishment is really winning very many of those battles against Donald Trump. The other scenario, I think the more dangerous scenario perhaps for Trump might be, you know, a, you know, I think this is an outside chance 
but if you had a, a Ron DeSantis win Iowa, and if you actually, I mean, if you had that actually happen, and then you had Haley somehow wins New Hampshire, Trump is over two in the first two states. Uh, you know, I don't think it then doesn't become a three-way race, but it be, it's a two-way race. Sorry, but it becomes a, potentially a three-way race with a much weakened Donald Trump. Um, and so anybody, you know, if theoretically anybody could win. I don't place very much stock on that right now, but I think it's almost in some ways the more likely uh, outcome uh, of uh, of these early primaries. If 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 there were to be a Trump defeat in in those battle in to, in those two early states. Well, your book uh, is about uh, the multiracial coalition that is remaking the Republican Party. Can you give uh, our listeners a, a sense of the extent to which that multiracial coalition is focused on is about Donald Trump? Yeah, so I argue that um, we are seeing a populist realignment of American politics with uh, working class voters going uh, towards the Republicans and uh, more college-educated voters going towards the Democrats. It's certainly something that you have seen in the UK, you've seen throughout Western democracies. Um, and part of that, I mean, the unique uh, racial politics that we've had in the United States is that um, most of you know non-white voters, Black voters, Hispanic voters especially, are within the working class, which I think we've broadly defined as having a college degree, right? I mean, that has been the variable that has explained more than anything, the shifts that we've seen in the Trump era. And so what's happened is that these groups that were once mainstays of the Democratic coalition, African-Americans in particular, 90% uh, of the vote for Democrats, uh, very stable in their voting preferences over a long period of time. So they haven't really moved off of that at all. Um, but you see, you're now seeing some movement, right? You're seeing movement in the voter registration numbers. You saw some movement in the midterms and you're seeing movement in the election polls. So what's happening? Uh, what you're, what's happening right now is you're seeing a, a pretty significant collapse in non-white working class support for Joe Biden. So uh, the latest New York Times Siena poll had Joe Biden only leading among working class voters of color, that is those without college degrees, by only 16 points. This was a coalition that Barack Obama won by 67 points. That is a shift of 50 points. Uh, and that is devastating, frankly. I mean, even if, even if it's not quite that bad for Biden, if, even if he recovers some of that traditional support that, that his party had, um, that is quite a big shift uh, uh, against uh, against the political party. And it shows that this, uh, you know, what people thought about, you know, the Trump election the first time was that this was kind of white racial backlash in working class white communities in the upper Midwest. Um, but it's really turned into something broader than that and not really about racial backlash. It's turned into kind of uh, the continuing divide between working class voters and uh, of all races and the college educated, um, primarily white voters, but also, you know, increasingly of all races, too. Mm. And I mean, if it is now class warfare, uh, the Democrats used to win class warfare and they used to win class warfare multiracially. Um, what exactly is it that has flipped uh, flipped the script? No, it, it, you have seen uh, uh, certainly class role reversal. Um, now, that hasn't necessarily meant, right? Um, I think that Republicans and conservatives have adopted class warfare politics, but they've adopted cultural warfare politics that map on to many of the same coalitions that were waging class warfare against each other in prior prior generations. 
But we recently had uh, we have recently had an upsurge in union activity in the United States from the Hollywood strike to the United Auto Workers strike to very high profile strikes. And very interesting in the UAW strike, they had both Trump and Biden go to Detroit to try to associate themselves somehow with the strike. Um, you had other elected officials, uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio, um, candidates for Senate in Michigan saying we support the UAW strikers. Um, and I think that's a very different, it's a very different approach, right, than than what we've seen. Um, in the same way, right, I mean, I use this example from UK, British history and UK politics. You know, who were the people, right, who, you know, when Margaret Thatcher shut down the coal mines in the 1980s, right, who were the people protesting that? It was the left. You know, who were the people sort of advocating for the, the keeping those jobs in uh, and uh, most strongly, it was the political left. Um, and right now in the United States, it's the right, particularly when you talk about the issue of coal and energy, um, that it is really um, uh, it, a lot of these economic debates have become bound up in more cult uh, debates that you know have more of a cultural language. And I think climate is is certainly one of those one of those issues where um, the parties of the right are kind of standing up for the old. Uh, industrial manufacturing base or is seen as, as, as standing up for more of the domestic manufacturing uh, industries as compared to uh, Democrats who are standing up for the post-industrial knowledge economy. Yes. Uh, we had Joel Kotkin. I don't know if you know him uh, on the podcast recently. And we had an interesting conversation about how uh, middle-class people in America um, I mean that middle class in sort of the British sense, not in the I mean, American middle class seems to mean almost everybody. But I mean, uh, you know, higher than working class people uh, socioeconomically who are now uh, identifying with populist working class language because they feel their jobs are under threat in a way that blue collar jobs were under threat, you know, 20, 10, 20 years ago. Did you pick up, have you picked up something like that, that there's there's a sort of working class uh, solidarity that is being felt in the middle classes now, and that is pushing them towards... So I do think that you do have, ha you had depolarization between the political parties on economic issues where, again, Republicans are, I think, more willing to, even conservative voices are more willing to give voice to criti critiques of the modern economy. Um. That has ranged from, you know, everything from Trump's, you know, war against globalism, right, uh, war against uh, globalization and free trade um, to many voices now on the right uh, in the policy space in the United States, um, think tanks like American Compass, politicians like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance in the U.S. Senate um, who are talking about issues of like financialization deindustrialization uh, and trying to identify with more of a working class message. Um, I also just think that the work, you know, the politics of this in the workforce and the workforce is pretty complicated, complex in that um, I don't think you can define the working class, quote unquote, as exclusively blue collar workers, because that's really only a small segment of the electorate um, or necessary. And you have many, you know, people, and I think you, the Hollywood strike was probably an example. You have lower paid, college educated people. 
you know, who are now unionizing in some of these knowledge economy jobs from journalism to, you know, the Hollywood writers, which has been a long time unionized industry. But I think you, you are seeing some of this, um, partly because of the declining prospects of the college educated, uh, of the college educated, uh, you know, worker um, in that in the United States, in the UK, especially, I mean, there's great, uh, actually great charge from John uh, Byrne Murdoch, I think at, uh, at, the, at the Financial Times that compared the US and the UK on uh, the graduate wage premium. And in the UK, it's much less, right, a graduate wage premium. But even in the United States, that graduate wage premium uh, of the benefit of going to college has, has really dramatically declined. And so you have, I think, many more college educated people who are in more working class Positions, I think, but though, however, by virtue of the fact that they are college educated, uh, those people tend to be more Democrat, uh, democratic, I, I think, in their orientations, you do kind of have a working class politics. The working class politics I talk about primarily is centered on culture and education. And the reason I, I don't want to downplay economic, you know, certainly uh, economic or labor force uh, uh, trends, but um, when you actually look at how people have been sorting themselves politically, in terms of who they vote for, it is all about geography and education. And what about uh, what we call uh, the, the gig economy? You know, which is is a sort of the, in some ways the new blue collar economy. Uh, does that tend to skew democratic? By the gig economy, I mean, you know, the the sort of serfs of the of the technocratic age. Uh, you know, deliver um, Uber drivers and so on. Did, do you have, is there any good data on how those guys vote? There's unfortunately not because uh, we put gig economy as a category on our employment questions in our polls and it's 1%, right? One or 2% of the electorate. I'm sure it's growing. I'm sure uh, I haven't maybe checked that. I haven't checked the numbers recently. So it's very hard to get really hard numbers on, uh, you know, gig economy workers. Um, you know, I think the perception I think I would have and a lot of people have, it is a very immigrant strive, you know, potentially a striving community. Um, so I think it plays out differently in different regions of the country. Um, and it might be many ways a non-voting community as well. Um, so I, I think, you know, more research certainly should be done on specifically on gig economy workers. And tell us a bit more about the multiracial aspect of it. I mean, Trump improved the Republican Party's performance with Hispanic voters, I think with Asian voters, with uh, black voters too. Um, is that trend going to increase into the post-Trump era, do you think? Or is there something unique about him as a political phenomenon? Yeah, I think there is something very unique about him as a political phenomenon. But one of the things that we have seen in American elections since Donald Trump is that more people who aren't Donald Trump are actually are receiving more of these votes. Um, so I remember in 2016, when Trump first came in, you had a real, I'd say a real divide between people, let's say, voting for the Republican, the normal Republican candidate down ballot. When I say normal Republican candidate, I mean the pre-Trump Romney style Republican candidates that the party used to run. Um, so you had suburban voters really splitting their tickets between the Republican for Senate, who was more of a Romney style Republican and tr Donald Trump at the top of the ticket and not voting for Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. In 2018, 2020, and 2022, 
that ticket splitting all but goes away. Um, so uh, you generally have people are voting uh, for different candidates for different reasons, obviously, but you no longer have this coalitional demographic split in terms of what Republican candidates people are willing to support. Generally speaking, they're supporting the same types of candidates across the board. So I don't believe you necessarily have to be Donald Trump to command some version of this coalition that he's created. Um, because I think you're seeing Latinos surge to candidates like Ron DeSantis in his reelection in Florida, or uh, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, or Elise Eldon in New York State, who almost became the governor of a very blue state. But I do think I, I do think it's durable in the sense that there's been a long term misalignment, I would say, in the sort of ideological positioning of many of these voters and their choice of party. Um, you have racial voting patterns from the 20th century, especially among black voters yeah, that really solidified, you know, a really an outsized democratic loyalty that you don't see in any group. And you're seeing that break down. I'm actually uh, millennial, uh, Gen Z, but specifically millennial voters uh, that are gravitating more and more younger voters gravitating more in these non-white communities into the Republican camp. Um, so I, I think that that is, um, you know, that as that general generational turnover takes place, um, you're going to probably see the gaps narrow. Now, that doesn't mean that everything else stays constant. Like you will have probably more college educated voters going into the Democratic Party. You'll have all these kind of kind of shifts that cancel each other out. I think the main point is that, you know, the old Republican coalition uh, that was primarily based in white voters and white suburbs, particularly, is not coming back. It was an untenable coalition for the future of the country. You had the Republican, the so-called Republican autopsy in 2012. That really made the point that, you know, we're going to be a minority, majority minority country by the year 2050. We have to do better among working class voters. It's just the solutions that they had to, for instance, uh, go all in on immigration reform to appeal to Hispanics or moderate uh, the party's positions on social issues. In many ways, you know, what David Cameron right, tried to do with the Tories were the wrong solutions for actually realigning uh, these non-white voters, um, that actually uh, Trump-style populism, a, a sort of tough-talking, brash, strong-type figure, really was, uh, you know, really the ticket for improving margins in these communities. Yes, and it was uh, it was a sort of a sense of a working-class identity, even if it's not a working-class identity, because, I mean, I remember George W. Bush and, you know, a lot of talk about him and the Hispanic vote, uh, that never really materialised in the way it has done for Trump. Uh, and because a lot of people said it was about social conservatism. It was about, you know, Christian values and, and those sorts of things. And it turns out Trump was much more effective at aligning th that section of the electorate than, than Bush ever was. Actually, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. I think that uh, it, Bush was actually very, and I worked for Bush, but he was very instrumental in, uh, pushing the realignment forward in 2000 when you really had this really massive geographic divide by urban versus rural. I mean, that existed before, but it really, really blew open in 2000. And so you, you see Bush winning states like West Virginia, which was used to be one of the most democratic states, industrial 
blue collar, coal country, um, voting Democratic, the mainstay of the New Deal coalition flips to going Republican and then doesn't look back and now is one of the most Republican states in the union. So you see Bush did, does that. I think with a more Christian, you know, obviously, I think a little bit with that, those religious, that religious value. He did it with Hispanics, too, being governor of Texas um, and having a unique connection to those voters. In some ways, his margins with Hispanics were actually better than Trump, but just they didn't last. They weren't part of a lasting realignment of the of the electorate. But he did, what he did not get were the white working class voters in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. That was always something that, you know, he struggled. He struggled to win a state like Ohio, for instance, right, in, in which is now solidly Republican, despite its vote on abortion recently. It's a solidly Republican state, but he, you know, really could that that was like the pivotal battleground state in 2004. Um, so I think that, yeah, certainly coalitional shifts. Uh, I think that, you know, right now we seem to be on the verge of something that's been repeated over two or three elections, right? Um, so, and usually I tend to put more stock in those sorts of realignments as opposed to, I think my, some of the realignments of the Bush era that manifested in one or two elections and then went away. Uh, you mentioned abortion there, and that, of course, has since Dobbs uh, and the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, um, that seems to have been electorally a great boon to the Democrats. Um, and I wonder how that cuts across class and racial lines. Uh, are we seeing uh, people who might otherwise be voting Republican voting Democrat because of the abortion issue? Um how big a problem do you think it's going to be for the Republican Party uh, in next year's presidential election? I think it will be a problem to the extent that there are states that have this issue on the ballot. So, and I, I think the the, the approach has been pretty strategic in trying to get uh, ballot questions on in, in ballots in states. I think like Nevada, Arizona, uh, maybe Pennsylvania, but really strategically focusing on swing states. Uh, swing states are oftentimes there is abor- there are abortion rights, but they want to codify them in the constitution of these states. Um, what we've seen in states where abortion was on the ballot in uh, in one of these elections, certainly those initiatives have won and they have driven democratic turnout. But that turnout only really existed, uh, you know, for perhaps for that issue. But they've driven Democratic, you know, when those voters show up, they vote Democratic. Now, I think that's much harder to do in a presidential election where turnout is already going to be high across the board. People are going to be motivated to at least uh, come out and vote for the presidential election. So when you're talking about an off-year election or special election, Democrats have really been pretty successful in altering the makeup of the electorate based on turning out to vote. Um, they have a more highly educated coalition now, so it, it seems to be easier for them now to get out the vote in these uh, off your, you know, what you would call by-elections, right? Um, but, uh, and that's I mean, a reversal of, of the past trend. In a presidential election, uh, I think it's it, I think it's hard to uh, uh, to uh, manipulate, let's say, the makeup of the electorate based on one issue alone when it's not on the ballot in all states and it's not really being decided in all states. It's also, you know, in some states, it's, you know, you did have, for instance, a ballot initiative, too, in California that really didn't do anything because nobody believes that California is ever going to ban abortion rights. <laughs> so in a lot of these states is a foregone conclusion, but certainly in a state like Ohio, they had a six week ban. It was tied up in the courts that, you know, really did in a few states and particularly in these lean red states, 
it really does, it really is uncertain which way the state is going to go. So people's vote really counts for a lot in those ballot initiatives. And, you know, they've been able to mobilize for that. And do you think we'll see the Democrats, and to what extent, I don't really know the technicality of this, to what extent will Democrats be able to put some kind of abortion measure down ballot on every state uh, vote? I mean, will they be able to, to, I I hear what you're saying, that that vote will be swamped a little bit because turnout will be higher generally. But they will try, presumably, to make abortion a major issue in every state, even putting some kind of referendum on abortion in every state. You don't have the necessarily the ability to do that in every state uh, and equally, or it's very difficult. It's, it's a very different state by state. Generally speaking, Western states are much easier to put uh, ballot initiatives on. They have a culture of ballot initiatives. It's certainly a factor in most states and a threat in most states. But look, you have in many cases, you have states that are either primarily the pro-choice states, right, who are, are pretty well set in terms of uh, ballot measures, uh, or some, they're pretty well set in terms of what their laws are going to be. A lot of places, um, you know, those laws aren't going to change. Um, but they're certainly, they're going to try specifically in the battleground states. I mean, they don't really necessarily need to do it nationwide, but they do need to do it within the battleground states, because that's where, where it's going to have the greatest potential impact on the presidential race. And uh, one more question about abortion. I mean, the the thing that's been said a lot is that it's flipped as an issue now, uh, because in the Bush years it was, and and before it was a, it was a great way of turning out voters, uh, inspiring voters on the right, inspiring Republican voters to come out and vote, uh, and yet there was never any real push to actually overturn Roe v. Wade. Now that Roe v. Wade's been overturned, it's flipped the other way, and it and it pushes out. Democrats, even though sometimes, as you suggested earlier, it's not actually a realistic, going to have any realistic thing on whether abortion is legal or not. It's just a great motivator of of voters. I think what you see in all of these cultural issues is that whenever a side feels like they're under siege, their side is under siege or under threat, that they turn out and vote. And I think that's flipped on abortion where, you know, the nation, the country as a whole, had Roe versus Wade, there was no real opportunity for democratic debate in state legislatures in the states from the pro pro-life point of view. And, you know, they really felt like, you know, you've really shut down a debate. And so, of course, the pro-life side was going to be more vocal and more active, right, in that environment because they were losing. Now it's the pro-choice side that substantively has lost the nationwide right. So abortion now has to scramble to get back these state state by state piecemeal protections, even though the amount of uh, actual the, the, the statistics and the numbers on abortion has not gone down. I mean, the, the number of abortions have not gone down since Dobbs. They've just been redistributed between states and people having to travel state to state, which is certainly a burden for people. And so people have been messaging around that pretty, pretty uh, significantly. But again, I think it's, it's true of all cultural issues. Um, so, you know, in the sense of we legalized gay marriage in 2015 nationwide with the Supreme Court ruling. And I think that the cultural left did not stop at that point, at least the people, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say it was the gay marriage proponent specifically, but, um, you know, the debate moved onto the transgender debate, right? Uh, the rights of, um, you know, and and uh, and that whole debate where I think the proponents, right, 
were on not as strong of a ground in, in terms of the court of public opinion. And it felt like overreach. A lot of these, uh, you know, the, you know, in terms of people of, you know, transgender athletes competing, right? That issue, some of these things felt like overreach. One side is under siege. You had the rise of critical race theory in schools that being an issue where it's like you had normie, sub, normal suburban parents. I think this seems like something more than, all right, we're going to teach our kids about the history of slavery. It seems like, you know, you're pushing a very different, more radical kind of agenda that doesn't have public support and public legitimacy or broad public support and public legitimacy and has no place really being taught in, in the schools. So I think this dynamic applies really across the spectrum. And that's why I think you've seen, except on issues on abortion, the left be galvanized and on issues on other issues, on LGBTQ issues, on critical race theory, on these on this race and education uh, debate, you've seen the right become galvanized because they do feel like there is overreach on the other side and that there is a legitimate threat to their worldview, right, from, uh, you know, coming from the other side. Um, and one major uh, issue that we haven't touched on is, of course, immigration, uh, where I think, as in Britain, uh, it is a galvanizing force for the right. Um, it's a galvanizing force for the Republican Party. And I wonder to what extent the multiracial coalition you're talking about is galvanized across races on immigration now in a way that it wasn't maybe 10, 20 years ago. I think that uh, it wasn't really even galvanized that way five years ago. So what changed is obviously the border, uh, the, the situation at the border uh, in the United States has really shifted the politics pretty substantially to the right across the board. So, uh, you know, I don't even want to say it's, uh, you know, it, we've been, it's depolarized the issue, if anything, whereas in 2016, the border wall, Trump's signature proposal did not pull very well because Trump wasn't pulling very well throughout most of the pre-election polls. So, it, you know, that was a purely a reflection of, on him. And it was unpopular, right? So I think in many ways, Trump helped the pro-immigration side by galvanizing, again, creating that sense of threat, creating that sense of uh, we are now under, our rights are under siege. And, and, and it really kind of helped galvanize a lot of pro-immigration people. Then you have Biden comes in, puts in a new set of border policies, creates, uh, you know, what many argue is, is, you know, arguably created the border crisis that exists now. And public opinion has shifted all the way on the right in terms of, uh, you know, everyone is, um, you know, everyone is, is four square behind uh, stronger border security right now uh, and majority support for building a wall. And even Biden has unleashed, you know, even Biden released funds to build a segment of the wall now. I mean, it would have been unthinkable in 2016. And I, the polling I've done in on the southern border uh, in the in these Rio Grande Valley counties that surged to Trump, uh, that is an that is a very very strong issue, and I think they are the Hispanics there are indistinguishable from white Republicans in terms of their their depth of concern for what is happening directly in their communities. And I would say the current Hispanic the Hispanic voter, um, you know, I think they are for humane treatment for people who've been in the country for a long period of time. But they don't like what's happening on the border. They don't like illegal immigration. They don't want new uh, people, you know, flooding in to some extent, providing low wage labor market competition. 
right? And, you know, I think it's a dynamic we've seen throughout history with Im- with kind of previous generations of immigrants maybe putting up uh, the a door for newer generations of immigrants. So I don't think that there is a racial, really, or ethnic dynamic at all that them or card that Democrats can play on this issue. I think it is right now across the board, uh, let's secure the border. It's interesting you say indistinguishable. I'd have thought maybe from uh, some of your research, you might have found that it's, it, you know, Hispanics tend to be more hawkish on immigration than, than white people because they don't have that fear of being racist. That might be that might be part of it, right? I mean, I think a tell was in 2016 when Trump did made you know insulted Hispanics, insulted Mexicans, called them rapists, called them bringing drugs, bringing crime across the border in his announcement speech, insulted this Mexican American judge who said he could not be impartial in his case. There should not be a Mexican American judge in his case. I mean, remember all the things Trump said against Mexicans and Hispanics in 2016, and yet he doesn't really lose any support in the Hispanic vote, right? As a result of that. Uh, you know, people appreciated. I think you know, part of part of this is his personal style. People appreciated his blunt talking, blunt speaking, blunt style. Uh, in the, generally speaking, but within, I think Hispanics in particular uh, really appreciate that. Uh, you know, they're I don't think they're ones to sugarcoat things, right? In in terms of how they, you know, in terms of how they talk, right? In their families and with their friends. So. Uh, look, uh, I think that, um, you know, you are uh, seeing uh, there was kind of an undercurrent right against against this. I would not say they're more hawkish on immigration. I would say the folks along the border specifically are more hawkish on immigration than the average American. Um, but I'd say Hispanics in general have views that are, broadly speaking, in the mainstream on the issue. Uh, Patrick, let me finish by asking you a question. If uh, you were to have godlike status within the Republican Party and you could just brush away the, the primary process and pick the candidate that you thought would beat Joe Biden, has the best chance of beating Joe Biden. Who do you think that is? Uh, you know, uh, I would say uh, I'm going to like not take a side in the primary process as a result of this question. But I would look to somebody, frankly, like Brian Kemp or Glenn Youngkin, even though I think in many ways they do, they do not seem like avatars of this more populist style coalition. But, um, you know, what you actually saw in their election, their highly popular, highly effective governors, is that they were able to really assemble all of the elements of the Trump coalition. And in those states, it's not necessarily like a winning coalition, certainly in in both Georgia and Virginia. Those are states that have gone blue in the last, and went blue in 2020. And they're able to add people to that coalition across the board. Right. I mean, so it, it really does matter. Uh, it's not necessarily that there has to be necessarily a more populist, fire breathing type Republican to activate uh, this coalition. What we're seeing in the success of, of those candidates specifically is that you just need, you know, I think to some extent you need somebody who can channel uh, a lot of the issues and the cultural issues that Trump raised, you saw that uh, Glenn Youngkin did that very effectively in Virginia in the debate over critical race theory in the schools, um, but can really talk to the suburban voter and can bring some of those voters back into the party. And because we saw that, like, you know, certainly Trump did have a, a different ty- style of coalition. He had the most diverse Republican presidential coalition in history. It wasn't enough in 2020. So I think, these, you know, there are candidates who are showing the way to do that. And you don't read uh, the, in the uh, special election last week in in, uh, in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, they 
lost the assembly. You don't read that as a as a, a sign that Youngkin's politics have not been effective. You think that's no, I don't. I don't at all. I mean, I do think that. Uh, look, if you look at the state, I mean, it was uh, it was very close. I think the 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 uh, uh, lower chamber was decided by eighteen hundred votes. And, um, you know, most of those candidates performed about as well as Glenn Youngkin, I mean, almost to the, you know, almost as well as Glenn Youngkin in, in winning. Uh, they won several Biden voting districts. Um, and so certainly if you look at what other states, um, other states that voted in 2021 and 2023, like New Jersey, there was a much bigger Republican drop off because then I think the credit really belongs to Youngkin for really putting a lot of his machinery to work to try to get Republicans, especially to vote early, to uh, move away from Donald Trump's aversion to early and absentee voting, uh, which really cost Republicans the Senate in the Georgia special elections in 2021. Um, so uh, I, I think that, you know, he, you know, it came short, but it was a Biden plus 10 state in, in 2020. So I think it was probably likely always going to come short. Yeah, it's a, it's a bluing state. It's 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 trending blue demographically. Is that I right? think on the Virginia. right circumstances, it's purple, right? And a candidate like Youngkin, it's purple. Um, with a candidate like Trump, it's blue. Well, Patrick, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on to Americano. And I really hope we can get you on again because it's been um, wonderful to have your, uh, your insights. Um, so please come on again. And um, thank you. And everyone should buy your book. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Farose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.